Uh, how many of you know and are excited that it's 57 days till Easter? And I know this because if you go to Target, it's all covered with, with Easter eggs and baskets and all this kind of stuff, right? You can't, you can't miss it. Hey, before we get into the message, welcome, welcome to everybody. So glad that you're here, especially welcome to our visitors. If you're, if you're new here or maybe it's been a while and I haven't talked to you or haven't touched base with you, please, we'll be hanging out after service. We'd love to uh, just get a chance to say hi and, and reconnect with you a little bit. Um, but we are kicking off a new series. If you missed our last series on godly relationships, you can go to our website. You can listen to them through there, through all of our messages, or you can podcast, Google Play, iTunes. Um, I think it was a worthwhile series. You know, some people think, well, it's that transition. It's kind of a throwaway series, kind of a, you know, but there are so many problems with relationships in general, all different aspects of relationship that I think it was so important to get a firm grounding on what God says about relationships. And it's cool because there's no aspect of our lives, there's nothing that happens in our lives that the Bible doesn't address. It either, doesn't, it either addresses them specifically, explicitly, or it gives us the power. It gives us the guidance to get through every single thing that would come our way. There's nothing that we experience today that the Word of God doesn't address and or give us the instruction for how to get through it. It gives us the very power of God to get through what comes at us. So that's why I was excited about that. This is going to be a continuation of that. We are going to talk about Old Testament prophecy relating to a coming Messiah. And we're going to be talking about this all the way up through Easter. See the tie in there? A coming Messiah and Easter. Okay, I was hoping that the light bulb would go off there. So we're entering now into this time that a lot of people call holy season. Okay, there's Lent and there's Passover and there's all kinds of things. In fact, it's 11 days to kick it off, 11 days till Ash Wednesday. And this isn't a comprehensive list, by the way. There's more. 11 days till Ash Wednesday, 23 days until Purim begins, 50 days until Palm Sunday, 53 until Passover, 55 until Good Friday, and then 57 until Easter. How many of you know the significance of all of those days? How many of you know the significance of all those celebrations? Or is it just, uh, I kind of roughly, vaguely know that there was this thing that happened on that time. There's kind of this story that goes around that. That's kind of most of us, right, really. Even, even Christians go like, well, I confuse Good Friday and Palm Sunday and Passover. What exactly are all those things? And sometimes we do that. And I'm not here to go down through all of those holidays but we'll kind of explain and talk about the significance of them as we approach the individual days. But it's more than just what happened on that day. What does it mean? What's the significance of it? Why do we really even talk about it? And you might be going, okay, some of those are just Jewish holidays, right? Some of the, those are the significance is that it's a Jewish holiday. Isn't That's what it's all about, right? And there is some truth to that for sure. But every single one of these celebrations and all of the others that we can think of that are out there 
are at their very core about Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that? Even, even Purim, you look at Purim, and that's going to be one that we're going to, I'm going to go through, I'm going to devote a whole message to that. How does that relate to Jesus Christ? And in fact, the question that I have for you before we even get started is this. Of the Bible, of all the books in the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, how many of them relate to Jesus Christ? You guys are smart. Those of you who read my notes that are online, like John as always, it's not cheating if they're available, right? All of them. Every single book of the Bible foretells of Jesus, explicitly talks about Jesus, or is in some way about the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. They, every single one of them are, and not only is he in them, but he is absolutely central to the entire Bible, old and new. And not only that, but it is imperative that we understand the significance because without that, Without Jesus and reading it through a lens of Jesus Christ, it's going to be nearly impossible to understand the entirety of Scripture. Again, old and new. We call it old and new. In Jesus' time, they just called it the Holy Scripture. There wasn't anything old about it. And in fact, sometimes we draw that line, well, okay, at Matthew, it switches over to the New Testament and that's maybe a good way to wrap our minds around, okay, pre-Jesus and, you know, on the earth and then post. Maybe it helps us with that, but sometimes I wish we didn't even have that designation because it makes us think, well, old is before and we're not even going to worry about that. We need to understand the entirety of Scripture. There's no way that we can grasp the significance of God's plan for us unless we understand where it started. There is no way we can understand the power of the gospel message of Jesus Christ and our absolute need, our desperation for a Messiah. There's no way we can understand that if we don't understand the basis in the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about so much more than our salvation. In fact, it is power. Scripture itself says, that the gospel message of Jesus Christ is power. Do you see it like that? We can see it as, that's good news, it's a good story, good for us, it's my salvation. But do you see it as power? Let's talk about that. A couple of scriptures I want to pull out just really quick. I'll read this one to you. Romans 1, 16, 17. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. It is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, this one we have on screen, I think. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, it's not just, it's not just a feel-good story. So many people tell you, oh, it's just, it's just meant to make you feel good. It is absolute 
power. That word power, by the way, in both those scriptures and other places that we see it, that's a Greek word, and that Greek word translates as dunamis. Okay, dunamis is, is supernatural power, okay? Supernatural, miraculous power, might, strength. But it's also the root, you might recognize it, of the word dynamite. Do you think of the power of God working in your life with the kind of power of dynamite? Explosive power can handle anything, not just kind of sort of in the background, explosive power. There's so much in the word that goes back to that. Did you know in the very first, very first, um, in Genesis, Genesis 1, this is not in my notes here, but when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, right? Before anything, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Did you know that that word spirit translates as violent wind? A violent wind, as in a storm, as in a hurricane, that's the kind of power that is found in the gospel. That's the kind of power. And that's what we need to understand because if we're going to latch on to something to help guide us through this life, we need something powerful. We picture the Lamb of God, this gentle Lamb of Jesus, giving himself up for the slaughter. So many of us look at that and go, well, that's not the kind of power I want to guide me through this massive storm I'm about to go through. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. When we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word gospel literally means good news. That's literally what it means is good news. And as Christians, we tend to think that the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ started when it started the resurrection, typically, right? Who thinks it started with the resurrection? Okay. Everybody's afraid to raise their hand or shake their head like, I ain't going to be wrong. But we think, of, we think of Jesus and his triumph over the grave, his very triumph over the power of death. That's good news. So sometimes we think that it started there, but again, it, we can't see the fullness of God's plan in the bad things that happen around us. We can't see that when something terrible happens to you or happens to somebody in your family or something that we perceive as why is this being allowed to happen. We can't see the fullness of God's plan, and many times it just seems cruel. If we to try to put our fleshly measure of the things that happen to us, the things that happen around all these people that are dying of, of this strange virus. Can't God just stop that? And a non-Christian will typically argue with you, what kind of a loving God would allow? How many times have you heard a sentence started that way? What kind of a loving God would allow? And it just seems cruel. It seems uncaring unless we trust that God not only has a plan, but he has always had a plan. He has always had a plan. And we have to trust that because we can't always see it. But we can always know it. We can always know it. That's why it's important to see that Jesus is not just a character in the New Testament. 
He's not even just the central character of the New Testament. He is the point, church, of the entirety of Scripture. He is the point. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is amplified through the entire history of mankind. We see it everywhere from the beginning. And if you don't understand that, or worse yet, if you don't believe it, the power of the gospel is going to be minimized to the point to where you're going to start relying on earthly things to help you. You're not going to see it as this dynamite power to blow up anything that's in your way. See, the power of the gospel, that very power is our hope and our anchor when we're struggling to persevere. When you're faced with things, and as a Christian we say, I have faith that God will get me through. A lot of people on the outside, by outside I mean non-believers, those people who don't give their faith to Jesus Christ, they will see that and they'll say, oh, that's nice, you have a good luck charm. I have a rabbit's foot that I carry. That makes me feel good. They'll see it like that. And as such, we need to have an answer when people say, how can that make you feel good? How can that story keep you, keep you grounded, keep you full of faith, keep you hopeful when things are swirling around you and things are exploding all over the place? How can that? The words have faith can really ring hollow when it's really hitting the fan. Even among Christians, when we try to comfort somebody by just say, have faith, it can sound so hollow sometimes. But if we have an understanding, a true understanding of where that faith comes from, now we can explain it, now we can spread the good news of Christ, not just that he was, but that he is today. First Peter 3.15, it says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always be ready to give an account of why you have hope. It is not enough, church, even with each other, even with fellow Christians, to just say, have faith. We have to know why we can have faith. We have to understand that it goes so much farther than just his death on the cross. Because that is not something, when I'm in the middle of a storm, it's hard for me to go, well, Jesus died on the cross. Okay, how does that help me today? This is what we're going to talk about. For the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking at the fulfillment in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ. All those promises, all those prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, we're going to look at the fulfillment of that, and we're going to look at why it's important. So the first question, and most of you seem to agree, and that's good, (coughs) that the entirety of Scripture is about Jesus, but we know this because unless we completely discount the words of Jesus Christ himself, which even even those who are opposed to him, the Romans, even those people who were opposed to him couldn't doubt his own words. No one has been able to refute the words of Christ himself. And in Luke 24, 44, it's recorded, Jesus says, says, Now he said to them, 
These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Okay. Jesus himself says, it's all about him. So unless we completely mistrust that, we take that to heart. Now let's look at what he means by it's all about him. So the question, what's the first hint, the very first glimmer, the very first hint of Jesus Christ in the Bible? What, what, what book and verse is it found in? Anybody know? Genesis, crush the head, okay. Okay, but Genesis is kind of vague, I think. Okay, you're getting there. How about Genesis 1-1? Genesis 1-1. It's the very first verse of the very first chapter, the very first book. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. All right, anybody know how that can point to Jesus? big brain on my pastors over here. The word God, the word God is Elohim. The word Elohim is the plural of another word. That word is Eloah. Eloah is singular God. Elohim is plural God. And that term Elohim is used throughout. Okay. That's our very first hint. But it gets even clearer than this. Genesis 1.26, a little bit farther down. Some of you were thinking this way. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I like that it keeps using the word creeping. But let's, let's focus on the us and our. Let us make Man, in our. Who's the us and the our? Us and our. There are all kinds of scholars who argue this, okay? It might be that us and our is God and the angels. Anybody think that? God and angels? Trinity? God and angels, okay? Okay. In Genesis 5.1, it says that man was created in the likeness of God. Okay? Man was created in the likeness of God. And then elsewhere, we can go to Isaiah 6.2, says it's describing angels, it's describing seraphim specifically as having six wings. Then we see later in Genesis where there's six eyes under each wing and all kinds of craziness on how angels look, Right? Now, they can appear human in a messenger role. We've seen angels appear as humans. But in this point where God says, let's make man in our image, angels are created. Angels aren't the creator. So we have to look somewhere else. Us and our. Is it a plurality of of gods, which they would have seen in in Roman mythology and Greek mythology, wouldn't have been mythology at that point. To us, it is. But you would have seen this plurality of gods. Word study does not back that up. Let me just stop there because I could go down an entire another rabbit trail for that. 
It is the Trinity. It is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there's no ambiguity on this. Now, let me ask you this. Where is the first gospel message of Jesus? The gospel message, the good news, not the first mention. The first gospel message of Jesus, where is that found? In Genesis, I think we've given that away. Somebody quoted that scripture a little bit earlier. Crushing his head. Let's talk about that just a little bit more. That's good news. Crushing his head, right? Anybody know what the name, there's a really, really churchy, Bible-y sounding name for this. I'm going to teach it to you so that you can sound smart when you're at your next Bible study, right? It's called Proto-Evangelium. Anybody ever heard that word? Proto-Evangelium. It's the first good news. The first good news, the Proto-Evangelium, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, literally a Greek word that just means first and good news. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Let's go back. Come with me, if you will. Garden of Eden. So God had just created this place for man to live, right? We saw that. Given him Eve as a helper, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the garden, we see that to the point where later when God calls out, they, he doesn't even call out yet, and they hear him coming. They're so familiar, and they're so used to walking directly with God that they can just hear the sound, and they know it's him. An amazing place to be. Then the first sin comes in. The first sin, the original sin, you hear it sometimes, okay? They disobeyed God. They had heard God's word, do not They heard the temptation, and they chose temptation. They ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, right? Then God curses the snake and tells Adam and Eve of these terrible consequences of their actions, right? We read that right in Scripture, the cursed ground, the painful childbirth, the working the ground in toil and sweat. Worse yet, no more walking with God. No more direct communion with God in the cool of the garden. Ultimately, he says, you're going to die and go back to the dust that you came from. But right in the middle of this, right in the middle of this, God immediately implements his plan for restoration. This isn't something you had to think up on the fly. He knew it was coming. And he immediately implements this plan. Genesis 3.15. Got it on screen. It's a coming. And you can leave that up there for just a few minutes, guys. I'll tell you when to take it down. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. All right, so this is the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first good news. Now, you might read that and go, how is that, nece- how is that good news? I don't necessarily read that and see anything good. Somebody's getting their head crushed and somebody's getting their heel bruised, I guess. Thing is, only God would have understand, understood what this meant at the time. 
Adam and Eve would have had no context for what this meant. They certainly wouldn't have, have really seen the big picture. There's no way they could have. The point here is that God didn't say this for the snake's benefit. He didn't say it for Adam and Eve's benefit. He said it for yours. He said this for your benefit, knowing that this was going to be recorded in Scripture. It was going to be given to Moses, recorded into Scripture. And all these years later, you would be sitting here looking at this going, God's always had a plan. This is why we study, to be able to see that God's plan isn't something that comes along on the fly. It's not a response to things. God's always had a plan and a framework for how we are going to live our lives, and we fit into that framework. Let's take a closer look at this. Now, who's, who's God speaking this to? To the snake, right? Which we know later on is explicitly said, the snake is Satan. Okay, so we know that the snake is Satan. So God is saying this literally to Satan. And then the word enmity. I will put enmity. Anybody know what enmity? We don't use that commonly. But it's, it's an active mutual hatred. An active mutual hatred. It's something that foretells that there will be a constant struggle between good and evil. It's foretelling of that right there. Constant struggle between good and evil. Now let's look at your seed and her seed. Your seed being the snake. The seed of the snake are all of those who would partner with him in his evil ways. Evil men throughout eternity are here clustered into his seed, right? The snake's seed. Now what about her seed? Your seed and her seed. Her seed, that woman, or that word, that woman, that word translates as zera. It's pronounced zera, the seed, the word seed that is. It's a sowing or an offspring specifically. It's used over 230 times in the Old Testament alone, the word seed. Now, here's the important thing. Only one time in all of Scripture is the word seed, your seed, ever applied to a woman. Every other time, it's a man. It's a man and his seed, and through his seed, all these things. Abraham, all these times. This one time and this one time only, we see the seed of the woman. Why does this make sense? Because of Jesus. Jesus came from woman, fleshly woman, and so there is no seed of man with Jesus. And so this is foretelling of that time. This one time only, Jesus had no earthly father's seed as the very son of God. Again, pointing to Jesus, verifying Jesus, they would not have understood it then. He shall bruise you on the head. Again, he, who's the he? He shall bruise you on the head. Anybody know who the he is? Well, how do we know this? Because it's capitalized, right? No? That's how I know it's Jesus speaking. Because it's capitalized. Yeah. Only God would have known. Only God would have known at that time. The seed of the woman being Jesus Christ. That's how we know. Okay? The word bruise. The word bruise, by the way, is another Hebrew word. It's shuf. 
is how it's pronounced, but it means to bruise, to crush, to strike. It explains how, depending on the translation of the Bible you have, whether it's uh, NIV, NLT, anything like that, King James, you see it sometimes as bruise, sometimes as crush, sometimes even as strike. It's actually all bruise, crush, strike. It's all exactly the same word. It's only in the Hebrew language when we're looking at it that we look in context of a snake bruising, a snake striking, that we see it in these different contexts. So whether your version says bruise, crush, strike, it's all the same word, but the point of it is a fatal blow is being delivered to the serpent. A fatal blow is being foretold here, delivered to the serpent, right? And then a wounding of the seed of the woman. A wounding there. Blood will be shed to win victory. When I was praying about this, how do I explain it? Here's what I got. You ever play whack-a-mole? Head pops up and you're smacking it with a hammer, right? Picture that with a bunch of snakes. And you're walking around and you are crushing snake after snake after snake. You're crushing. It's not just one snake. Snakes pop up in our lives every single day. And the Lord showed me this picture of you spend enough time crushing snakes and eventually your heel's going to start hurting. I don't see it as any damage being inflicted. I see it as a result of crushing snake after snake after snake in our lives. But that's the imagery that I have. Here's what we know. A fatal blow, a fatal blow to the serpent through wounding of the woman's seed. 800 years later then, 800 years later after Moses received these words, remember these words were given to Moses. That's when we saw them. 800 years later than that, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53.5, gives us very clearly, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That word crushed again, same word. Same word. So a quick warning, really quick here. Um, I'll make it really quick. If you're going to Google this, the Proto-Evangelium, if you're going to Google this, you're going to get two things. You're going to get the Proto-Evangelium, the real one that we're teaching about here. And then you're going to get something that says the Proto-Evangelium of James. You might see the Gospel of James come up. Okay, do not be misled by that. It is not a true gospel. It's something that came along a couple hundred years after Christ. Okay, it claims to have been written by James. It was not. It was written somewhere in Egypt, they think. And it goes in to describe Mary. Basically, it elevates Jesus' mother, Mary, and talks about her childhood and all these kind of things. You'll see that. I only want to bring this up because I don't want you to get confused. It is not a true gospel. So if you Google that word, be sure you're looking at the right one, okay? Now, let's go back to the message here. When the world seems to be in turmoil, hurtful things are happening to you, painful things are coming your way, it can be really, really hard to hold on to God's promises and say, I'm going to trust in that unless we see his redemptive plan has always been there. And we've always been able to rely on it because it has always unfolded exactly as it was prophesied to unfold. So we know that. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So why do we need faith? 
Why is it even important that we have faith? If it's just going to happen for us, why do we need to have faith? Hebrews 6, 17, 19, I'll read this to you. It's a little bit longer. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, that's you, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, that's his promise to you, so that by two unchangeable things, his purpose and his promise to you, in which is it impossible for God to lie, we will have taken refuge. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. We need to be able to understand all of this prophecy being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ if we are going to believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. If we're going to look at the storm in front of us and say, thank you, Lord, for leading me here, what do you need me to do? That's how we should approach our days. That's how we should approach our coming, coming storms, the ones that are sure to come. Bible never says if a storm comes. It always says when it comes. We're promised it's going to come, and we should be able to face it and say, what's my role? Not, Lord, help me. He's already promised he's helping you. Grab onto that. Live your life like he's promised you that, and he will be there. Our only, our only job really is to ask, what's my role in this? Some of you may have heard there's a, there's a woman, an author. Her name is, is Cornelia. She goes by Corey Ten Boom. Anybody heard of her? Corey Ten Boom. Dutch woman, born, um, born before, before the 1900s, like late 1800s. Um, her and her family, um, again, they were Dutch, and they saved Jews who were being rounded up by the Nazis. Put him, they hit him, she hit him in their home. Um, and this worked very effectively for a long time, but at some point she was caught. Her whole family was caught, taken to a concentration camp where she was seeing them slowly be exterminated one after another. Ultimately, she is the only one of her family that survived. But she has a quote that she said, or that she, she wrote it later, but she, she was making notes while she was in the concentration camp. And this is it. You might have seen this quote. Sorry for the resolution there. In order to realize the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the stress of the storm. When you wonder, you can pull that down. When you wonder how God can allow these terrible things to happen around us? Is it maybe so that we see our reliance on the anchor? Is it maybe so we understand that we absolutely need an anchor? We need a Savior. We cannot do it on our own. And not only that, but I have an anchor that I can trust. Because from the very beginning... From the very creation of the heavens and earth, God had a plan that Jesus Christ would be my anchor. And it's proven time and time again. This isn't something we have to guess at. This isn't something we have to hope for. This is an assurance that we have. 
of the power in Christ. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up. So whether you are right now in the middle of a storm or you're seeing one on the horizon coming your way or maybe you're in this great sweet spot where, where there are no clouds in the sky but we know one's going to come. We know it's going to come. We need to choose our anchor wisely. Are you really going to rely in your own abilities to get through what comes? Are you going to rely on having a whole bunch of gold coins tucked away in your vault someplace? You watch TV commercials, and it'll tell you that. If you just have enough gold coins socked away someplace, you're going to be fine. Choose your anchor wisely. Psalm 46, 1 through 5, I want to read this to you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. When I see the storm coming, church, I choose Christ. He is my anchor. And if you're here, we're going to go into communion in just a moment. Sometimes I look around and I see faces that I recognize. And the assumption is, oh, we all know Christ. We've all given our hearts to him. We've all turned our lives over to him. And I'm, and I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak. That can be a mistake because just knowing who Jesus Christ is is not surrendering yourself to him. When we say, have you made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, that implies that you're willing to give it to him. Not just the parts you can't handle. I'll handle everything and then I'll pull the fire alarm if I need help. That's not how it works. And so if you're here, I want to invite you. Maybe it's the first time you've ever done this. Maybe it's to a depth that you have never done before. Surrendering yourself to him. We know what scripture says, Romans 10, 9. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you will be saved. That's the easy part. Believing it. Okay, we can believe it. We can confess it. Okay, most of us could probably do that right now if we had to. What about truly surrendering your life to Him? What about saying, You are the rock in the storm, and I am not going to rely on myself at all? You are my help. If you need help praying that, I'm going to pray to close here in a minute. We have a prayer team in the back. They would be happy to pray that with you. Again, maybe, maybe you already know Christ. Maybe you've been baptized as a child or baptized before, but you're still holding on to that thing saying, well, I'm just going to keep Jesus in my back pocket or on the shelf back here. And when I really don't know what to do, I'll go ahead and turn to him. Are you willing to totally surrender? 
They will pray that with you as I'm gonna pray that with you right now and then we'll move into communion. At the crosses, again, like we always do, we've got juice, bread, crackers. You can serve yourself there. Uh, Gabe and I, I believe, will be serving up here. We have wine if you would like to be served. But let's do this with an assurance of who Christ is. He is our rock. There is nothing in our own power or our own strength that can stand against the storms. There is nothing that has ever been prophesied about one day you'll have all the power to do this yourself. It has from day one been Jesus Christ is your power. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you that from the beginning of time, you have known us. You have known how we would be. We're not somehow worse than you ever expected. You knew and you made a way. You gave the most precious thing, the most precious thing that you had, you gave for us. And so Lord, I personally, and if you wanna join me in this, I repent of ever thinking I've got this figured out. I repent of ever thinking I can handle this. Lord, I trust in you as my savior and I surrender myself to you. I surrender all my hopes and my dreams and everything I ever had, ever will have. God, I turn it over to you. And I kneel at the foot of the cross and I call you my Lord. So Father, I thank you and I praise you for what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, church.
Jesus, your presence is the.